This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Qualities of an Effective Leader. In the first half, Peggy S. Worthen shares her address, Choose to be a Leader. Then in the second half, Liz Wiseman speaks on the power of not knowing. BYU is a wonderful place because it has wonderful students. I hope you all realize how much potential you have. You are all future leaders. You will lead in the Church. You will lead in businesses. You will lead in communities. You will lead in volunteer efforts. And most importantly, you will lead in your families. One of the things I hope you learn here is how to be better leaders. If you do, you will be an enormous force for good. I would like to share with you some things I have learned about leadership over the years, things I wish I had known about leadership when I was your age. I begin with a personal experience, one that provides several lessons about leadership. From the time we were first married, Kevin and I have gone to visit my parents at their cabin in the mountains about 75 miles south of Provo. A number of years ago, while preparing to come home after one of those visits, my then young son needed to get something out of our locked car. So I gave him the keys and told him to be careful not to lock the keys in the car. A few minutes later, he returned, looking a little sheepish. He then hesitantly but bravely confessed that he had locked the keys in the car. What then ensued was one of those moments that my children still refer to many years later as, Do you remember what Mom did when the keys were locked in the car? Yes, upon hearing the brave confession of my young son, I responded in a way that corresponded more to his age than mine. I threw a tantrum. I raised my voice. I even kicked the car tire. I let my emotions take over. Fortunately, that lasted only a few moments. My father calmly reminded me that I had roadside assistance insurance for times like this. His calm reminder instantly calmed me. I called roadside assistance, and we were soon on our way home. Now you might wonder what lessons could possibly come from an experience like that. Let me suggest three. First, I learned that we can learn from our mistakes. I immediately regretted the way I behaved that day. I reflected on the fact that as a mother I was a leader and a teacher to my children and I resolved to do better. That experience had a powerful impact on me. While I am not perfect, I think I am doing better in that regard. Fortunately, as Elder Bruce C. Hafen once observed, because of the Atonement we can learn from our mistakes without being condemned by them. That is a powerful lesson for leaders to learn. Second, I learned that we can learn from the good example of others. My father's calm reaction to my outburst quickly and powerfully reminded me how I should act in those situations. Although I already knew how I should act, seeing his example has provided me with a distinct reminder that has guided me throughout the rest of my life. It is also important to note that such examples don't always come from those who are more experienced. I went to BYU as a non-traditional student returning to school after our youngest child began elementary school. A few years after I returned, 
I attended a class in which there were only a handful of students. Towards the end of the semester, I had become well acquainted with the other students. One day, before class began, I was visiting with a classmate who was seated in the aisle next to me. While we were visiting, a young man who also attended the class walked into the room and started to yell at my classmate. The young man was obviously very angry. I didn't know what had happened between them. However, I was shocked that this was happening at all. I wasn't sure what to do. I even wondered if I should go get security. While I was surprised at the original confrontation, what happened next was even more surprising. My classmate who I was talking to stood up to face the young man. I thought, oh no, a fight. Just then, my classmate quietly and calmly said, I am sorry that I have upset you. What can I do to make this right? I remembered sitting back in my seat thinking that this response was probably the most mature thing I had ever witnessed. The young man suddenly stopped as if all the wind had just been knocked out of him. They both sat down in their seats. The two of them began to have a very calm discussion, and that was the end of what could have been a very explosive situation. My classmate had totally diffused the situation with a quick, quiet, and calm response. Not only did he remain calm, but he responded with the soft answer that Proverbs teaches us will turn away wrath. What a powerful example. As I thought about that experience and contrasted it with my own less than ideal response to my son's locking the keys in the car, I realized another important lesson for leaders that in every situation, even those that are packed with high emotion, we all have our agency to choose how to act. One noted psychiatrist observed that between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In other words, there is always a space or an instant in which we decide whether we will put out the fire or ignite the fuse. Elder Tom L. Perry once taught this lesson by telling the story of a young missionary who was in his first day in Brazil. He and his senior companion were assigned to open a new city some distance from the mission headquarters. As they arrived in this new city and walked down the street, they passed a church with a minister standing at the front door. As they walked by the church, the minister went in and called to his whole congregation to follow him out into the street. There they followed the missionaries and started calling them names. Then they became more violent and started to throw rocks at them. The young elder was excited about this experience. His first day in the mission field and already he was being stoned, he thought. <laughs> then a big rock suddenly hit him squarely in the middle of the back, and his feeling changed to anger. Before entering the mission field, he had been quite a baseball pitcher, and in the flush of anger he wheeled around, grabbed the first rock he could find on the ground, reared back in his famous pitching pose, and was just ready to let the rock fly at the crowd when suddenly he realized why he was there. He had not been sent all the way to Brazil to throw rocks at people. <laughs> he was there to teach them the gospel. But what was he to do with the rock in his hand? If he dropped it to the ground, they would think it a sign of weakness and probably continue to throw rocks at them. Yet he could not throw it at the crowd. 
Then he saw a telephone post some distance away. That was the way to save face. He reared back and let the rock fly directly at the telephone post, hitting it squarely in the middle. The people in the crowd took a couple of steps back. They suddenly realized that that rock probably could have hit any one of them right between the eyes. Their mood changed. Instead of throwing rocks at the missionaries, they began to throw them at the telephone post. After this incident, every time the elder went down the street, he was challenged to a rock-throwing contest. The rock-throwing contests led to discussions of the gospel, which led to conversions, which led to the establishment of a branch of the Church in that community. No matter how high our emotions or how acute the crisis, there is always a space in which we can choose how to act. And in that choice, great leaders are made. Third, I learned from my experience that how a leader acts in those important moments sets the tone for those around them. My father's calm response immediately calmed me down, just as my young student friend's remarkably tranquil response calmed down his fellow student. On the other hand, my less than calm response served merely to upset my children. Mosiah chapter 20 provides us an example of how two different leaders set the tone for those within their stewardship with two different responses during a crisis. When the daughters of the Lamanites were captured by the priests of King Noah, the king of the Lamanites assumed that the people of King Limhi were the captors. Based on this assumption, the king of the Lamanites, with his armies, attacked the people of King Limhi without first verifying what really happened to their daughters. During the attack, the Lamanite king was wounded and left for dead by the Lamanites. The people of King Limhi brought the wounded Lamanite king before King Limhi. The people demanded that the king of the Lamanites should be slain. Instead of giving in to the demands of his people, King Limhi told them not to slay the Lamanite king. Instead, King Limhi simply asked the Lamanite king why the Lamanites waged war against them. The king of the Lamanites replied, Because thy people did carry away the daughters of my people, in my anger I did cause my people to come up to war against thy people. Through this conversation, the two nations were able to reconcile, albeit temporarily, and end the war. It was in anger that the king of the Lamanites attacked the people of King Limhi, choosing to ignite the flame. His choice to do so cost the lives of many of his followers and others. By contrast, King Limhi's choice to put out the fire returned peace to the land and to the souls of those he led. I am grateful for all the wonderful examples of leadership I have in my life. As future leaders, it is my hope that as you obtain your formal education here at BYU, that you too will strive to learn from your mistakes and from the examples of others and choose to set a peaceful tone for those around you, especially in times of crisis. As you do so, I am confident that you will obtain those qualities that will help you to be true leaders and become an enormous force for good. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Qualities of an Effective Leader. We've just heard from Peggy S. Worthen. After the break, we'll return with Liz Wiseman for The Power of Not Knowing.
This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is qualities of an effective leader. Next is Liz Wiseman, president of the Wiseman Group at the time of this address, titled The Power of Not Knowing. So when I came here to campus this morning, I had a bit of a panic. And it wasn't at the thought of you because, honestly, uh, you all are this awesome, awesome sight. It was seeing the signs, those big signs at the entrance to campus. And I have to admit, these signs always give me this little panicky feeling because it's this reminder that this is a place where I was abandoned by my parents. Um, (laughs) This is a place that I was left to kind of figure things out on my own and to wonder, am I even smart enough to be here? But today, these signs gave me this panic because I knew I was coming here to campus, a place that cultivates knowledge and reveres intelligence to talk about the dangers of knowledge and the downside of intelligence. Essentially, I was coming here to ask this question, can we actually get too smart? Now, you know, you've probably heard this saying, knowledge is power. But today, I want to ask, is there actually more power in not knowing. And, and, and I want to make a case for ignorance. And not ignorance is in the lack of education or stupidity, but simply the lack of certainty. My dad had a saying. He, he used to say, it looks like someone's gotten too big for their britches. And by this he meant that they were a little too full of themselves, a little too much of a smarty pants. Um, as we gain knowledge, And as we gain intelligence and we get smart, can we get a little too full of ourselves? A little too smart for our own good and and maybe even a little too smart for the good of others. I want us to to center this conversation today in, in two questions. They're both questions that I spent years researching and writing about. Uh, the first is a question about leadership. How does the knowledge of a leader affect the intelligence of the team around them? And why is it that some leaders seem to amplify the intelligence of people around them and other leaders seem to just suck the intelligence and life right out of a room? That's our first question. The second question is a question about learning and performance. And I want to begin with the first. Uh, When I graduated from BYU and from the Marriott School, I took a job working for a small Maverick software company called Oracle. No one knew this company at the time. They thought it was a toothbrush manufacturer. And, and Oracle had a very simple and clear hiring strategy. Hire the top grads out of the top schools, mix them all together, and just see what happens. Now at the time, Oracle didn't recruit at BYU, and Oracle did not actively recruit me. I really found Oracle and wiggled my way into this mix. And it wasn't as if I felt like I didn't belong there. I just felt really lucky to be working there and to be working around all these brilliant people. And I became a genius watcher. And I could see how intelligence and just raw brilliance and smarts was this really powerful tool for growth and for innovation. But I also could see how intelligence was being used as a weapon. Because we all know that, you know, really smart people tend to get promoted into management, but many of these leaders never look beyond their own genius to see the full genius and the capability of people around them. 
They're smart, but they tend to shut down the smarts of others. They're idea killers and energy sappers inside of an organization. They're leaders like this one particular executive I worked with at Oracle who was brilliant. And despite the fact that he managed a vast, vast scope, several divisions inside the company, he micromanaged every detail of their operation. He personally reviewed and edited every piece of documentation for every product that came out of his product divisions. And the authors of these documents that he would review would get the documents back and they would have all sorts of scribble marks with his signature green pen and a lot of capital T's written all over the document. But then when they got to the end of the document, there was this helpful legend to help them interpret these notations. And it said, T equals terrible. Um, and to no surprise, I watched how people held back and played it safe around this executive. But I also noticed a different type of leader, a leader whose intelligence was infectious inside the organization, a leader who seemed to bring out the intelligence of people around them. When these leaders walked into a room, it was as if you could see light bulbs going off over people's heads and ideas flowed and problems got solved. And I came to call these leaders multipliers and these other leaders diminishers. Now, haven't you ever wondered this? Why it is that you are just absolutely brilliant around some people, but kind of a bumbling fool around others? Beyond the dating context? Um, I became really determined to research to find out why some leaders seem to bring out the very best in people around them. And this research showed that these leaders did a number of things alike, but a small number of things very differently. These diminishers issued directives, and they gave direction based on what they could see and what they knew. Whereas these multiplier leaders, they defined opportunities and invited other people to stretch toward them. These diminishers carried with them this belief that no one's going to figure it out without me. Whereas the multipliers held this belief that fundamentally people are smart and they're going to figure it out. And the research showed that these diminisher leaders got less than half of people's intelligence, the available intelligence around them, whereas these multiplier leaders got all of it. It's a 2x difference in the amount of intelligence that was being used by these multiplier leaders. And this difference really comes from how this leader uses his or her own intelligence. One of my favorite multiplier leaders uh, is a phenomenal athlete and today, you know, a sports franchise owner and businessman, Magic Johnson. And he described this experience he had when he was a young man that shaped the way he led. So, you know, he is a phenomenally talented basketball player. He's in high school. And his coach says to him, Irvin, because this is back when he's Irvin Johnson the second, and uh, pre-Magic Days, and he said, Irvin, every time you get the ball, I want you to, you might think he would say, pass it. He said, Irvin, every time you get the ball, I want you to take the shot. And so he did, and he scored a lot of points, and the coach loved it, and the players loved it because they won every game. They would win with 54 points, let's say, and Irvin would have scored 52 of those points. But the 
boys loved it because what young boy doesn't want to be on an undefeated team, right? But then after one particular game, all the players are leaving the gym, they're going out to their cars, and Irvin notices the faces of the parents who came, of course, to watch their sons play basketball, but they got to watch the superstar. And, and he said, I made a decision, you know, at this very young age, that I would use my God-given talent to help everyone on the team be a better player. And it was this orientation he had that actually earned him this nickname of magic for this ability to raise the level of play of every team that he ever played on. Leader as multiplier versus leader as diminisher. But that really wasn't even the interesting part of this research because while I started sort of thinking that these diminishers were these narcissistical, tyrannical kinds of bullies, what I found is that most of these diminishers actually weren't jerks. Most of them were really nice people. And I saw that most of the diminishing that's happening inside of our schools, inside of our workplaces, and, and I would even venture to say inside of our homes, is happening by really good people who really think they're doing a good job leading. And you might ask yourself, how might I, with the very best of intentions, actually be having a diminishing impact on those I lead? or those I work alongside with, or those I even live with, I call this the accidental diminisher. And it, it manifests itself in, in several ways. You know, maybe you're a bit of an idea guy, the creative thinker who's constantly spouting ideas, thinking that your ideas are going to stimulate other ideas. But actually, people just end up chasing your ideas and shut down. Or the always-on leader, the charismatic leader, always present, always engaged, always something to say. And they think, of course, that their energy is infectious, right? It's almost like, woo! Woo! Um, but people say these leaders are suffocating. You know, what do you do when you see one of these people coming down the hall towards you? Yeah, and then they expand like a gas and take up all the available space, leaving very little room for others. Or what about the rescuer? This is the leader, the person that doesn't like to see people suffer, struggle, make mistakes and fail, and they extend a hand of help. But they end up leaving people rather helpless. Or the pace setter who's leading by example, setting the example, assuming that other people will see and follow. But when other people conclude they can't catch up, they can't win, these leaders end up creating more spectators than actually true followers. Or the rapid responder or the optimist, you know, who sees, you know, the can-do leader who sees nothing but possibilities, but also overlooks problems. Because where is learning really born? You know, it's born in the struggle. Becoming a great leader you know, requires us to understand how our most noble intentions can end up having a diminishing effect. Sometimes we don't see it till much later. This is executive Mr. T equals terrible. I, I ran into him several years ago, and it was at this kind of big event, and it was actually not a big event. It was a small but really interesting event. It was um, this alumni gathering. They called it the Oracle 100. It was the top 100 leaders who had helped build and grow Oracle. And we all gathered together to mostly talk about, like, wasn't that fun? And, you know, maybe even aren't we great? But, um, you know, midway through the program, we took a break. And I see this man. And I said, man, this must be really fun for you to, go, like, look back and see what it was that, that you had built. And he said, 
And he responded in a way I really wasn't expecting at all. He got heavy and sad, and he said, no, actually, this is really painful for me because I think I was really hard on people, and I realize now that I didn't need to. But not only can our knowledge and our capability blind us to the capability of people around us, it can blind us to new possibilities. I want to turn to the second question. How as a professional does our knowledge get in our very own way? And I want to go again back in time, back to Oracle when I am the age of many of you here. I'm just now a year out of graduate school, a year, maybe year and a half into my career, where I get asked to manage the training function for the company. And that seemed premature to me. But then it was really premature when they said, and Larry Ellison wants a university, so Liz, we need you to build a team and go build Oracle University. And it struck me that this was a grown-up job. This was a job that should be done by, like, one of these kind of people here behind me. This was a grown-up job, and I wasn't yet a grown-up at all. And, in fact, my only qualification to run a university is I had recently been at a university. And no one but me seemed at all concerned by this great lack of experience that I had. And having this big job but very little experience, I was forced to ask a lot of questions and stay really close to the executives. And so my strategy was just keep showing up at their staff meetings and learn as fast as you can. And what I learned is once you keep showing up, with questions, they expect you to have answers at some point. It's like showing up to a potluck and never bringing anything. At some point, people says, hey, are you going to actually bring and contribute anything? So I was forced to show progress and results. And and we were doing a, a pretty good job. And uh, But I took a lot of teasing from the executives about being kind of young for this fairly big job. And at one particular time, my boss and I were at this business event, and he introduced me to a client, a very distinguished-looking man, and he said, this is Liz, she runs Oracle University, and the man did this noticeable flinch. It was almost like a startle response like this, and my boss, Bob, thought that was quite fun, and so he jumped into the conversation, sort of coming to my aid by saying, oh, yeah, Liz, she's not particularly qualified for her job. And, um, you know, and then he kind of breaks out in this big smile. And I realized you know, it was like the first lesson in executive management is you don't get a lot of air cover. And so I had to defend myself. And I said, hey, Bob, who wants a job they're qualified for? There'd be nothing to learn. And it was as if he said wish granted, because for the next dozen years, I had these jobs that I had no idea how to do. <laughs> and And it was, it kept up for about a dozen of years, but eventually... I started to feel qualified, and I actually started to feel legit, like, gee, I think I actually know how to do this, and maybe someone would actually hire me to do this and start a university or run a university, um, and that's when I started to feel stagnant and stuck, and I decided to leave Oracle, honestly, in search of something I didn't know how to do, uh, which kind of kept things wide open. Um, and that's what led me to be a management researcher and author. And as I left, I have this really wonderful friend named Dinesh. And um, he's a wonderful Hindu uh, friend of mine. He said, Liz, what's the question that you're holding this year? And my first reaction was, wow, a year seems like a really long time to hold a question. And then my second reaction is, I actually do have a question. And my question is this, how does what I know get in the way of what I don't know? 
but maybe need to learn. Now, this was a very relevant question for me because I am now leaving a comfortable environment where I'm the boss, and I'm now moving into this unfamiliar territory where I'm an underdog at best. But it struck me as, as also a relevant question for our time. You know, because we live and work in a reality where technology has allowed our business cycles and, you know, living cycles to spin so fast that often we don't even face the same problem twice. And that the state of the art doesn't stand still and it doesn't stay true for very long. If you work in science or technology or if you're going to go and graduate and take a job in a STEM-related or highly infused field, I did some calculations for this research, is that based on the rate at which knowledge is increasing and also the rate at which knowledge is decaying, I calculated that about 15% of what we know today is likely to be relevant in five years. Okay, and that's not 50, that's 15 as in between 10 and 20%. And, and here's the kicker on this, we don't even know which 15% this is. So my research team and I uh, a few years ago went to work on this and we studied about 400 different work scenarios looking at how people with experience approach a particular task and how with that same task people without experience approach it. And um, we found some really interesting things. We found that with experience comes obviously a lot of virtues and assets, but it also brings with it a number of blind spots. Because what happens once we gain know-how and once we start to recognize patterns and develop mental shortcuts? I have asked our academic vice president, Brent Snow, to, to read this off for us and and we should have. Could you just read that for us? It doesn't matter in what order the letters in a word appear. The only important thing is that the first and last letter are in the right place. The rest can be a total mess, and you can still read it without problem. For our academic vice president, thank you. Um, See, once, once we, we become familiar with the subject, we can see what we expect to see. And sometimes the more we know, the less we see around us. Let me describe what we found when we studied how people without experience approach things. And, you know, when we're operating without experience, it comes with some obvious downsides. Um, you know, case in point, no one in here really wants a rookie surgeon or a rookie dentist, and if you've been to like a first-year violin recital, you know what you're going to get there. Um, but when we're inexperienced at something, when we're in this rookie space, when we're doing something really hard and really important, and we're doing it for the very first time, we operate in some really predictable and very interesting ways. They're simple ways, but they're extraordinarily powerful, particularly for the environment that we're in right now. Um, we found that in this rookie mode, and this is whether we're 25 years old or 65 years old, that when we're in this rookie mode, we operate unencumbered, um, unencumbered by knowledge and a lot of facts even, and so we see more possibilities, we explore more. We lack know-how, so we've got to go out and get it. And what we found in the research is when we're in this rookie space, we ask better questions. 
We're more alert. We listen more. We value feedback. We seek feedback. And we found that when we're operating without a lot of expertise, we actually tend to bring in more expertise to bear because we consult with so many people and we mobilize the expertise of others. And in this rookie zone, kind of contrary to popular opinion, we're not these big, bold risk takers. We're actually extremely cautious, but we're fast. And we tend to outperform people in knowledge work. We tend to outperform when it comes to innovation and when it comes to speed. We operate when we're on a frontier in scrappy ways. We improvise. We're lean. We're agile. We stay close to our customers. Because when we lack resources, this is when we get really resourceful. Now, we also found um, an interesting relationship between challenge level and satisfaction. When we surveyed over a 1,000 people, how challenged are you in your work and how satisfied are you in your work? We found this really interesting linear correlation. As challenge level goes up, so does satisfaction. It's kind of our happy place because we're built for challenge. Now, you might conclude that we do great work. And, you know, and really, it is what the research showed, is that so often we're at our best when we know the very least. And you might reflect on that for yourself, like, why is it that it tends to bring out our best? And you might conclude that it's because we like it so much. But that's not really what explains this dynamic. And um, in a retaliatory move against the professor I TA'd for in, in graduate school, I'm going to ask Dean Lee Perry to come join me on this little experiment. And I've underbriefed him, so I don't think he's fully prepared for what we're going to do. So I, um, I am going to ask Dean Perry to play the role of challenger. It's a, it's a multiplier discipline. And what this involves is I want you to stretch this rubber band as tight as you... We're probably going to need some space. Let's go right over here. I want you to stretch it as tight as you possibly can. Okay, wait, first of all, I should give you a briefing. This is not a magic rubber band. Okay, so... Um, and this could end badly... Yes, it could end badly for you or for me or for pretty much... Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so what I want you to do is I want you to stretch it as tight as you possibly can without breaking it and then hold it there. And I have a backup in case this does break. As tight as you can without breaking it. Okay, we're almost there. Okay, we're, we're there. We're there. Okay, we're definitely there. Okay. So now, if Dean Perry just doesn't give in, um, I'm left here in a position I can't maintain for very long. What are my options? I can let go, or... Or... Or I move closer to him, which is representative of me solving the problem, gaining knowledge, figuring it out, sort of burning through that challenge. And then, um, as my leader, what would Dean Perry then do next? Okay, another stretch. Okay, and there he is. Back to this point of tension. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We are good. Lee, well done. Well done. I mean, we'll be off, off this stage. Thank you. And here in... Um, Herein lies the secret of this rookie zone. It's really powerful. It propels us to do our best work because we don't like it. We can't stand to be in this state of tension where the size of the task is bigger than our capability and it pushes us and propels us forward. We either let go or we push through. 
I think what I learned in this research is that when we linger too long on a plateau, a little part of us dies inside. But when we step out of this space of knowing um, where we're fully capable and we step into this unfamiliar territory, we feel alive. And I think it's actually where we feel divine. And in some ways, I, I feel like it's where we see God's hand working in our life. Now, my research has been in the professional world, but I can't help but see some of the parallels to our spiritual life. Um, I was recently struck by something I read in a letter, a weekly letter home from my uh, nephew Dylan, who is a BYU student who's serving in the Kobe, Japan mission right now. And he, um, he told a tale of two investigators, and it might be a familiar tale to some of you missionaries. And he talked of one investigator who said, honestly, I don't really understand the purpose of life. And another investigator who was convinced he already knew a lot about the church from TV and the Internet, and he was eager to actually share what he knew and teach the missionaries. And young Elder Wiseman, he described teaching the first. He said, I felt like my soul was on fire. He described teaching the second as a standoff, an inability to teach in a total absence of the spirit. He then referenced, as you might expect in his letter, Second Nephi 9.28, when they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not to the counsel of God. For they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. He then went on to say in, in the beautiful uh, simplicity of a you know, 19-year-old missionary, he said, yeah, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. You know, when we come to depend on acquired knowledge, uh, we can fall um, easily prey to secularism, which offers us a one-eyed view of the world. It's like we see... Clearly, but in a limited way, it's like we see half of the colors in a spectrum, but we don't really fully see clearly until we unite our knowledge and our faith, in the words of Robert Frost, as our two eyes make one in sight. Um, some of you know Stanford University was built in memorial to the only child of Leland and Jane Stanford who passed in his youth. And the great visionary um, Jane Lathrop Stanford, she designed at the centerpiece of this campus a church. And inscribed in its walls are these words. And she says, wisdom is the highest spiritual intelligence, while the natural man through knowledge can know nothing of wisdom. A man may have a great intelligence and yet have nothing of the Christ life within him. I think sometimes in our state of not knowing, it's actually where we come to know God. It's where we discover. Um, so how do we escape the trap of knowledge? I'm going to share four uh, simple things that we can do. The first is to ask more questions. And the, one of the most powerful shifts we can make as a leader is to shift from this place of knowing and to operate from a place of inquiry. My, my husband and I, we have four children, um, but 12, 13 years ago, it was a mere three children, ages six, four, and two. And I was talking to my buddy Brian at work, and I was, we were just commiserating about some of our, our parenting challenge. And I said, you know, Brian, I feel like I've become a, like a little dictator in my house. I've become a bossy mom. And Brian acted very surprised by this. And he said, Liz, you don't strike me as a bossy mom. 
I said, let me describe bedtime at our house. And if you have the 642 combo pack at your house, you know exactly what this is like. It's, okay, kids, time for bed, put that away, go over here, help your sisters, get your pajamas on. No, 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 the tag goes in the back, turn that around, go brush your teeth, go back, use toothpaste, uh, time for a book, get a book, not that book, no big books, not five books, no princess books. Okay, you know, okay, give me a little book, good, story time done, say your prayers, get into bed, not my bed, out of her bed, back to bed, go to sleep. And, and there's no yelling, it's just, constant telling night after night. And so Brian says to me, um, overlooking the fact that this was recreational complaining, and I wasn't actually looking for coaching, he offered me a little coaching anyway, and he said, Liz, why don't you go home tonight and try speaking to your children only in the form of questions? And I went on about the ridiculous nature of this task and how this was going to be about four hours before I could get them to bed. And I then became really intrigued by this challenge, and I decided I would take this challenge. I've come to call it the extreme question challenge, and I would take it to its extreme. Nothing but questions would come out of my mouth. And we did, and and dinner was interesting, and playtime was interesting, and we got to bedtime. I said, kids, what time is it? And they said, bedtime? I said, what do we do first? Where does that go? Who needs help getting their pajamas on? Who's going to be the first to brush their teeth? Okay, whose turn is it to pick the story? What story are we going to read? Who's going to read the story? Mom or dad? Pick dad, pick dad, pick dad. And, and then it was, okay, what do we do when story time's over? And they said, well, we pray. It's because they knew. And then my last question was, okay, who's ready for bed? Me, 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 me. Pick me, pick me. Um, And they went and they got in their beds and they stayed in their beds and I'm left in the hallway simply to wonder, how long have they known how to do this? Um, And I learned that when I asked the questions, other people found answers and I learned that at work when I asked the questions, people really didn't need me telling them what to do. They needed me to ask an intelligent question. We can tell less and we can ask um, a lot more. Number two, admit what you don't know. About 20 years ago, I sat in a meeting that changed really forever how I defined a great leader. I was working at Oracle with our three top executives, the president, the chief technology officer, and the chief financial officer. And we had been running this series of strategy summits, bringing our executives in about 30 at a time to brief them on the strategy and then kind of send them on their way. And I'm meeting with the three of them after the third program, and the feedback's not good. And the feedback wasn't good on the second or the first because the participants said the strategy articulated by our top executives, the three men that I was sitting with, they said it wasn't very clear, and honestly, it wasn't really compelling. And I'm reviewing the feedback with them, and they become unusually quiet. And so what did I do? I just went through the feedback one more time to make sure that they understood this. And that's when Jeff, the chief financial officer, and my boss, he just blurted out. He said, hey, Liz, you can stop beating us up. And I was like, wow, because that was really fun. I was enjoying that for just a little bit. Um, And he said, you can stop beating us up. He goes, we get that there's a problem. The issue is we don't know how to do this. And I'm trying to figure out what it is that they don't know how to do, develop leaders, because I'm not so worried about that. But it occurs to me, because now the president and the chief technology officer, they're both nodding their head in incurrence. He said, we've never run a $25 billion company before. We don't know how to set a strategy for a company this global and this complex. It's new to us. And as I'm contemplating the implications of this, he said, but if you could help us figure out how to do this, that would be useful. See, in fast times, everyone's winging it even the people at the top, particularly the people at the top. And so, you know, maybe if people are looking up to you, 
you can admit what you don't know. It creates a powerful dynamic in an organization. And for those of you who are actually at the bottom of the organization, you're the new hire, relax. You don't have to pretend because you're not being hired. Very few people here are actually going to get hired for what you've learned here. You're being hired for your raw intellect and your ability to think and reason and solve problems. Your value will come from the know-how you build, not the know-how that you bring we can throw away our notes. C.K. Prahalad of the University of Michigan's uh, Ross Business School, he was considered to be probably the great management thinker of his time. He was also a terrible fire hazard to the university because his courses were so perpetually oversubscribed that students just lined the halls trying to get an earshot of one of his lectures. When C.K. was a tenured professor, um, his wife, Gayatri, she found in the trash bin and in their home office, she found the stack of what turned out to be his teaching notes. So she rescued this most precious resource, and she returned it to CK later that night, and he said, he thanked her, but he admitted that I actually threw those away on purpose because my students deserve my best thinking and fresh thinking every semester. So if we need to inject a little bit of rookie freshness into our work, maybe we throw away our notes. And I should say I'm speaking here mostly to the staff and to the faculty. If you are a student, you hold on to those notes for just a little bit longer. Um, and lastly, instead of showing what we know, we can learn to see the genius in others. I mentioned my, my husband and I, we have four children, three of them have what I would describe is this active sense of adventure, like, you know, loving roller coasters, jumping off Utah bridges into cold water. Christian, um, our seven-year-old, he's different than the rest of them. Instead of being on the scale of adventures over here, he's way over here. He's a kid who was born without a sense of fear. He's a kid who's been living his life as if Red Bull, his, his corporate sponsor. Um, you know, his, his mantra is, uh, see it, climb it, figure out how to get down later. Think it, make it, clean up the mess, absolutely never. And, um, and, you know, it's very easy for Larry and I to get in this mode of kind of wanting to keep him safe and telling him how to do things and dispensing, like, at least essential, like, survival advice to keep him alive till 25, which is kind of our mantra. And, you know, most of this was bouncing off, as you can imagine. And I decided a couple years ago that I was going to just do something different. And trying to dispense advice, I would simply focus on seeing his brilliance. Now, let me, I've got a few pictures here um, just to give you a sense for this kid. Like, this is one of his little creations. It's a man fort. That's not so problem. The problem is where this actually is. Um, <laughs> and what's interesting is this was actually on our roof for about two months before we discovered it. Um, <laughs> and I have come to learn to see him differently, where I used to see a dangerous and destructive kid who might kill himself and the rest of us with him, I have come to see a creator, a brilliant innovator, a problem solver, someone who takes initiative, um, a bold innovator, a fearless missionary. And I see him differently, and nothing, nothing makes me happier than that special look 
that I like to think is reserved just for mom, and it's that look when he's done something kind of ingenious. And one of my favorites was uh, coming home recently to find um, out. He told me that he had gashed open his shin, like had a big two-inch gash, and of course I'm getting alarmed. And then he rolls up his pant leg to show me that he just stitched it up himself. And my first response was, oh, how scary. And then I just suppressed that and I said, how brilliant. How brilliant and how cost effective for your father and me um, <laughs> that you've done that. So we are, we are just about out of time. So let me sum up by saying, ironically, here's what I know, is that we're so often at our best when we don't know. That the best leaders don't have the answers, the best leaders have really good questions, and they use those questions and their own intelligence to bring out the genius in the people around them. Uh, the great philosopher uh, Bono uh, was describing the great artist George Clooney, and he compared him to these two British prime ministers from the 1800s, and he said, it's been said that after meeting with the great British prime minister, William Ewart Gladstone, you left feeling he was the smartest person in the world. But after meeting his rival, Benjamin Disraeli, you left thinking you were the smartest person. See, I think it's time we recognize that at the top of the intelligence hierarchy is not the genius, it's the genius maker. And I think we need to recognize that we tend to do our best work when we're on the outer edges of what we know, when we're doing something hard and new, and we're growing through challenge. It's not only where we do our best work, it's where we tend to find our greatest joy. For those of you lucky ones who are going to be taking jobs, I hope some of you will take jobs that you're not fully qualified for and tell yourself who wants a job you're qualified for, there'd be nothing to learn. So yes, let's gain knowledge, but let's not get too big for our britches. Um, the best leaders are restless learners, they're perpetual rookies. They realize that right now it's not what you know that counts, it's how fast you can learn. Yes, the glory of God is intelligence, but it's in seeking, not knowing, that we find truth. Um, because I think this space is where we discover the true glory of God. Thank you. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Qualities of an Effective Leader, with thoughts from Peggy S. Worthen and Liz Wiseman. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.